In this episode, we interview baker and chef Matthew James Duffy. Matthew is well known online for teaching the art of baking sourdough, and he's fostered a community of bakers via his website and YouTube channel. We discuss his journey as a chef and baker and his transition to being a professor of baking at Centennial College in Toronto, Canada. Matthew is a great teacher, and I recommend visiting his YouTube channel and website to learn more about creating sourdough and really growing your skills. For links to information about Matthew and his class offerings, please reference our show notes. And on to the show. You're listening to Sharing the Flavor, a show that connects you with flavor and how to create. In this show, we connect you with recipes, cooking techniques, and show you a little bit of the science of cooking to help make you a successful cook so you can share flavor with your friends. I'm your host, Andy Gebby. Matthew James Duffy is known as Sourdough Duffy Online, and he loves to teach the art of baking. We chat with Matthew about his journey from being a chef to professor to online educator. So join us for a fun discussion with Sourdough Duffy. This is this is gonna be paradise for me. So that so you know how much I love sourdough, and we have a very special guest here with us. So we have with us Matthew James Duffy, who is a chef and he's also a professor. Um, and he is a he put up, puts out a lot of wonderful content on sourdough. So welcome to the show, Matthew. Very happy to speak to you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I love talking about bread. <laughs> I always I always tell people if you don't have it half an hour, don't ask me a question about bread. <laughs> That's great. I, I, I often wonder because because you know I actually come from a, a technical background and people tease me about like don't say that you're technical because people ask you to fix their computer. So if you get invited to parties, you know, do you want to kind of hush on the whole baker thing because people are like, hey, can you help me with this thing that I'm doing kind of thing? So. You get pulled into conversations about baking a lot, and you're like, eh, "I just want to hang out more with you." More so, all. I don't get in. More so, I don't get invited to dinner parties because people don't want to cook for me, and that's a common theme that happens in our friend circle. Is we never get invited over for dinners. <laughs> you're like, "I just want pizza, man. It's okay. Don't worry about." It. Yeah, but look, at the end of the di- at the end of the day, you cook for a living. You work making meals for other people. You spend most of your adult life in a kitchen. I'm not coming to your house to critique your food. I just want someone else to cook for me. I don't want to wash the dishes. It's lovely. Unless it's like really, really bad. And if it is, I won't say anything to you. I would obviously say it after to my wife and I'm very pleasant. But I'm not coming to critique. And I think people get this notion of like, oh, he's a chef and he's going to. But really, it's just such a nice thing to have someone else cook for you. It's a lovely experience, you know, for the most part. So. If anyone is listening to this and they want to have me over for dinner, I love being invited over for dinner. It never happens. <laughs> that, that, that would be like one of, one of the sad things about being a chef, right? You're everybody's like, hey, let's have dinner together. Uh, let's maybe go. Doesn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> okay, it doesn't happen to me. I'll, I'll make a carbonara. What the hell? <laughs> my, dinner, my wife has a friend who has like a dinner club and they get together and like a different couple cooks every time. 
and she thought we were going to get invited and it went on for so long. And then it turns out they didn't want to invite me because they didn't want me to just like ruin it for, I'll ruin it for everybody else. Cause they knew I would just go way crazy and then that would ruin everyone else's thing. But it's not like that oh, at all. Funny. I just cook simple food at home. You know, I like good products and I like to eat good food, but I'm not cooking maybe the odd dish here and there, but I'm not cooking like Michelin caliber foods that for my two and five year olds, you know, <laughs> Anyways. Anyway, so Matthew, when I was when I was reading up reading about you, you have a really neat journey into being a chef, right? So you didn't. I don't think you started off with the intent of being a chef, right? So, um, and from what I was reading, I mean, you went to school at the University of Guelph, right, in uh, in uh, Ontario, but then you kind of your life kind of took a different journey to it, and then you came back to studying to be a chef, right? Yeah, I worked in restaurants growing up in high school and just as a job as anyone would do. And I had an interest in it and I liked it, but it wasn't with the goal of being a chef. I don't know why I wanted, I think maybe Food Network influenced me. And then when I went to university, I thought that if I was studying hotel and food administration, there's a lot of opportunity to travel. I love travel. So I thought, hey, I can travel. And then more importantly, I was really into snowboarding and I was teaching and I had a lot of friends that were really deep into competition and getting quite good and sponsorships. And so I was in that world. And so I moved, ultimately thought if I do this degree, whether I'm snowboarding or not, I'm going to travel and work in all these hotels. And then when I was in a student in university, I needed a job and I started looking for jobs. And the only thing I really had experience doing was working in the kitchen. I also had some kitchen-based courses at university. And those are the ones that I found the most exciting. I did the best at. And I always got this, oh, you're good at this. Maybe you should do this more. Maybe you should pursue this as a career. And I worked at this catering company, which was a fine dining catering company. The head chef was a graduate of the University of Guelph Hotel and Food program. And the executive sous chef was a graduate of the Stratford Chef School. And my mom was a co-op teacher in high school. And so they got together and signed me up for, in Ontario, we have what's called the Red Seal. It's your apprenticeship. You do your hours, you get your papers. So unbeknownst to me, they signed me up for these papers. And one day I was at work and the apprenticeship person showed up and they said, hey, we've got you on here, sign up. And the chef from Stratford said, look, if you log the hours and you don't do anything with it, who cares? You didn't pay to sign up for the apprenticeship board. However, if you work here and you decide you want to go to chef school, you want to get your red seal, you'll at least have the hours. And that I think was them pushing me into it, but in a positive way, not forcing yeah. me. That's pretty awesome. So what, how, what would you say like your, now is with Stratford chef school, is this kind of like, I think about it like you know, I'm trying to correlate it to something like CIA here in, you know, in the States. How does it work there? Good. Yeah. Good question. So CIA is a huge school. I don't know if I'd compare it there, but in some ways it's probably similar. The whole goal of the Stratford Chef School when they first started now, it's changed a little bit now, but when they first started, the main goal of the school was to train chefs to work and own and operate Michelin restaurants. It was strictly fine dining based. The owner of the school 
and the head chef of the school ran this restaurant called Rundles mm-hmm. in the summer when the school was closed. Stratford is a theater town, Shakespeare Festival. So people, it's very transient. People come for the summer. It's really busy. Winter's really slow. Yeah. So to sustain the restaurant, they open. They also were in this town and they couldn't find any staff. And there was no one, Cal, no one in Ontario could cook at that level, right? Neil, the chef, had worked at Trois Gros, which is three-star. He worked at Taivon, which is three-star. He worked for Robuchon. <clears throat> and so he was trying to find the staff. And they essentially created the school to staff their own restaurant. But it turned into this big thing of training fine dining chefs. And that's what drew me to that school was that my full intention was to work in the best places. And I wanted to learn from the best chefs. I had zero interest in like bistro sandwich shops. I would eat in them. I understand it's important, but I only wanted to work in fine dining. And the school was just perfect for me because that's really what they taught. The other thing is the days were quite heavy Um, and you would do these really intensive days of cooking and lessons and you were working in an operating restaurant with guest chefs from all over the world. They bring in Michelin chefs from France, Italy, Spain, Denmark, uh, whatever all over. And that's just what I wanted that I knew, I knew even though I wasn't at the point where it was crazy career, I knew that that was the key because I could always go backwards. I could always go from fine dining to a food truck. At the time, I don't even know food trucks really existed, but you know what I mean? I could go from a food, from a fine dining restaurant to a bistro or a hotel, but you can't level into that. You can't cook in the, in the local pub and then walk into a Michelin restaurant. And I think it, that's where the obsession came was that like, I don't know, the dedication to the craft, the repetition, the work, the environment, the the really high pressure stress environment. I really liked it. A little bit of the yelling, you know, as much as it's weird to say that now because you can't really do that. I kind of liked it and I kind of like that, like that just go, 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 go. And that's how my brain has always been. That's how I've always been in my life in work and outside of work. I'm just always kind of like racing mentally and i think that kind of sucked me in it hooked me that's pretty awesome yeah I, I, and we just recently uh, did an interview with uh chef who she's in tennessee now but she was actually actively working in new york city and went to school there in new york city and she was talking about you know life in a you know a busy you know restaurant is you know it's not for everybody right it's 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 to a certain degree like a war zone when you're in there it is is regimented yeah. it's hardcore and if you're built for it, you know, you can do well, but, you know, not everybody's built for that. It is definitely not. Yeah, 100%. It's not for everyone. And a lot of people can't do it or they don't want to do it. And that's fair. And it's not for everyone. Um, I've also heard just on the subject of New York, when I worked in New York, they always told me that six months in a New York restaurant is like two years in a restaurant outside New York because New York is extra, New York is extra pressure cooker. It's extra. I worked at a lot of nice places. New York is extra tough. <laughs> yep. Well, and, and looking when you, when you were talking before about like traveling and such, I mean, just looking at your bio, you've been, you know, circle the globe a little bit here, right? So been to to Europe, to Spain, to Italy, to Denmark. So were, were these were these things that were done after university or how did this all work out with you in these in these restaurants? So when I was in university, I finished and I moved to Banff, which is the Rocky Mountains, Canada. Mm-hmm. And I was working in a restaurant called Earl's um, and I was working the little pizza oven and so that was like my first kind of travel somewhere to work in a restaurant. But it, Earl's is a good restaurant. You could go. It's fine. But it's it's by no means fine dining. It's kind of a chain restaurant, whatever. Um, probably good meal if you go there, you know, but whatever. 
And so then I was in school and my whole philosophy, my passion was for kind of farm to table cooking. And I wanted to learn from chefs that were cooking organic ingredients. And I would spend my days off working on an organic farm called Soiled Reputation, which is just outside Stratford, picking salad greens, harvesting carrots. And I really wanted to learn how to cook locally. And I think for me, that was really, really important. So in school, I'm sitting in Rundles, which is now the school. Rundles is closed. And the master of cuisine comes down and he said, hey, Matthew, what are you doing for the summer? Where are you going to do the intern? You do two semesters at Stratford, but you have this big gap in between. You finish in maybe April, May, and then you go back in sort of October. So oh, wow. you're supposed to work somewhere in that period, go back to school, and then you do it again. And the hours combined with the school hours graduates you. And I said, look, I want to go to Sue Carver House. And Sue Carver House is this amazing hotel that's on Vancouver Island. They have over 200 uh, edible herbs and flowers on the property. They only use products from British Columbia, which is a province in Ontario. They don't bring in any lemons. There's no soy sauce. There's no foreign ingredients whatsoever they were best hotel in canada you know in the top restaurants in the world one of the best wine sellers in north america and so i said to neil i want to go here i want to learn how to forage and cook and he kind of said well you know i know the chef there and if you want to go rundles doesn't open for the festival until the end of june so you could go there for three months do an internship come back work for me and that's it so that was my first kind of travel experience i moved to vancouver i worked there for three months Came back, worked at Rundles, went back to school. Now in my second semester, now I'm bilingual French-English and I did French immersion my whole life. I don't know if I'm like, I shouldn't say bilingual. I'm not like certified, but I can speak very fluent French. Mm -hmm. And we had this chef come from Italy. I was in a really big bread phase of my life and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. And I was obsessively making bread and I understood the school's setup because I worked the restaurants at the school. So I worked in the restaurant that is the school, baking bread, ran a farmer's market. This chef comes, he's at that stage of his career where he was obsessively making bread. We instantly connected. And the the thing that pushed it over the top is he spoke no English. Really? So you had to learn Italian, school. right? No, but he spoke French. Oh, he spoke French. Okay. So we instantly had this thing because nobody spoke Italian at the school. He didn't have a translator. He couldn't communicate. He said something in French. I connected and he was like, you work with me for the rest of the time I'm here. So I worked with the chef. I was like his right hand. I showed up early in the morning. I mixed the doughs with him. And then he said at the end of his time in Stratford. So basically the school brings in a guest chef for let's say a week or five days, maybe three days, depending on where they're coming from. And so he was the chef in residence. And he said, you should come work for me in Italy. Cool. So I was like, okay, cool. So I finished school and then I went to Italy and it kind of like all these things just led to the next place. He said, you should try to go to Japan and that would be cool. I really wanted to work at Langdon Hall, which is a Relay and Chateau property outside of Stratford, kind of near there, maybe an hour and a half from Toronto, Ontario. And the chef had worked in Japan. So then I was like, I'm going to find a job in Japan. And I happened to find a Canadian guy who was running a restaurant in just outside Osaka with his Japanese wife hiring and he had posted through the Stratford Chef School job board, applied there, got that job, moved to Japan. When I came back from Japan, then I went to Langdon Hall and said, look, I just moved back from Japan. I want a job. You know me from school because the chef had done it. He was a guest chef at Stratford. You know me. I showed up. I did the lab. I want to work here. And he was like, okay, you're in. I've got, he actually said, it was kind of like, okay, let me see what I've got. I came to Toronto to interview at two other restaurants. Mm -hmm. 
in between the interviews, no shit. I was in a hotel with my, sorry, I don't, I don't know if I can in, just, just have the editor cut that in between these two interviews. I get a phone call. I'm in the hotel with my mom who came with me and it's Jonathan. He said, look, I got a job for you. You can, you got to start Tuesday though. I need someone right away. Wow. And this was on like a Friday or a Saturday even. I was living with my parents an hour and a half from the hotel. And to start off, I commuted. I drove, I took the job and drove. And so each chef, like I, I would say responsibly pushed me to the next thing. When I was working at Langdon Hall, I got introduced to restaurant Noma through the owner of the Stratford Chef yeah, School. I was just going to ask about that because that's a huge one. So. so he asked me, hey, what are you doing? I'm working at Langdon Hall. I said, I really want another international experience. I'm thinking French Laundry, you know, maybe, and some other three-star, very famous restaurants. And he was like, no, 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 no. You need to go to Noma. And I said, well, what's Noma? What is what is that restaurant? I never heard of it. And he said, well, look, let me show you. And he said, I recently went there. It's a relatively unknown restaurant. It's a really small kitchen. The chef worked at French Laundry. He worked at El Bui, two places that you want to go. So you're going to get that knowledge. And I know the pastry chef or the former pastry chef. So then that connection, one email away, next thing you know, I was in Denmark at the time. When I first started the conversation, I don't even think they were in the top 50 yet. They might have been. And when I finally got there, they were in like the 40s maybe. Um, And they only had one Michelin star. It was relatively unheard of. Even the chef from Langdon Hall, when I told him, he – was like, why would you go to Denmark? And what are you going to learn there? And you should go here instead. And he quickly realized like, wow, this is pretty iconic. I ended up, I ended up going back to eat dinner with the chef from Langen Hall at anyways, um, at Noma. But that kind of took me to Denmark. I walked into this foreign kitchen. Now is my first time being in a restaurant of that caliber, I would say, because it was pretty intense and you could, I could just tell this place is different. This is a different kind of restaurant. Um, when I was in school, I spent my weekends working at Egginson Farm. So I would drive to this farm property. They would do three dinners a week uh, and everything was grown on the property. And now they were in the top 100 restaurants in the world, I think number seven. And so I had worked in, in a world famous restaurant. And Michael Statlander, if you're in Ontario or Canada, he is one of the definitely leading people in this country who led the kind of culinary charge and really changed the way people cook in this country. He was raising those pigs, ducks, everything. And so anyways, once I got to Denmark, I'd worked in nice places, but this was different. It was very, very different. It was really pressure cooker, intense, stressful, say, a lot of yelling. Lot was, of it, was it really? Because I, I, when I think about Noma, I think about almost like a lab setting where people are like really, but what was it like? So at the time, the lab that they have now was on a boat, like an actual boat in the water. And that was the laboratory for recipe development. The restaurant was in the first floor and there was a second floor prep kitchen. This building was so old or uh, whatever you call it, heritage building. The floor, if you spilled water on the floor, it would leak into the restaurant, literally <laughs> on the guest table if you dump something. So and you could hear people walking. So when you're in the prep kitchen, you got to be super quiet or the chef would come up and, and leave. he was really nice, but he definitely had an ex- what I would call an extreme temper. Now, I think he's really changed the way he carries himself and the way he treats employees. And I think that he really did a good job of leading that sort of change in restaurants and understanding like, hey, we have to do better for the future of cooks. And, and so I don't want to say anything 
bad there because he was a super nice guy to me, but he definitely, you know, when he wanted something, he wanted something yeah. and he was really intense about it. Um, the overall experience was pretty cool. You know, you go in at seven in the morning, you leave at one in the morning, you're working five, six days a week, you're going out picking herbs on your free hour. Everyone is this like super team. You live with these people, right? You spend all day. I was lucky because I had gone through a recommendation of somebody who was the former pastry chef. So I think at the time there was four, maybe five stages, which is when you're doing a free work term. Everyone first day introduced everyone. Okay, stages go upstairs in the prep kitchen. And they looked at me and said, no, 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 not you. You came from Daniel. You stay here with us. So I worked in the main kitchen and I actually worked a station while I was there versus just in the back corner picking herbs, which is a lot of people do that. They spend three months just picking herbs and cleaning shellfish and doing like ridiculous tasks for hours. And I did that too. I did mundane tasks there, but you know, it was a really eye-opening experience because here was the chef that was revolutionizing the restaurant industry, not just cooking, like everything changed because of him. And he was a visionary and he had incredible understanding of ingredients and incredible understanding of how to pair flavors together and just really kind of blew me away. And so that whole, I think I stayed for about three and a half, maybe four months there. And that was, it's not a long time, but it was enough to say like, Hey, this is worth this experience of coming here because I feel like those lessons still impact me to this day and I don't even work in fine dining and I still carry some of those philosophies, beliefs, whatever you want to call it, um, about food to this day. Wow. I can only imagine. Giovanni, were you going to say something? Yeah, I'm just you, following along and applauding and when he keeps uh, places that I've ever visited. Wild, wild experience. That's a whole podcast <laughs> on its own. I, I remember I... There was a chef that came in, Anne Sophie Pick. She's three Michelin star in France. She's one of the best, biggest French chefs ever. Uh, and she came in for dinner. And every night it was a different chef for dinner because this was where chefs were traveling to eat at that mm -hmm. time before they ever topped that number one best restaurant in the world. For anyone listening that doesn't know, Noma was, I think, five years in a row as the best restaurant in the world. Mm -hmm. So this restaurant, when I was there, was up and coming. But the chefs knew. All the cooks knew. And everyone was traveling there. Foodies were traveling there, basically. And so I was prepping a dish called an Abel skewer, which is essentially a uh, pancake, a Danish pancake. You eat it with apples at Christmas. And they did this version with anchovy or maybe sardine, maybe not anchovy. I feel like that's not very Scandinavian. It's probably sardine or whatever fish is there. And I was shaking a little bit, right? Because it's really intense. I'm cooking for this three-star chef. I'm just a young apprentice, like interning. And he came over and asked me what I was doing. And I kind of told him and he was like, chef, you look a bit nervous. Are you okay? And I was like, uh, and he just looked at me and he said, chef, do you know what it means to be the third best restaurant in the world? Are you listening to me right now? Are you looking at me? Do you want to go back to Canada? There's no room for your nerves in this kitchen, chef. Are you listening to me? Are you looking at me? And he kept escalating slowly. And he, and I was like, oh my God. Like, and he kind of gave it to me. And then that night, my roommate, who was a sous chef at the restaurant, he said, you know, you've made it at Noma. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, he doesn't even talk to people he doesn't like. If you were just a stage in the corner, he would. if you did something, if you did something wrong, he would yell at the person in charge of you. He would yell at whoever station you're working at. He would never address you. He would just say like, why is this like this? And then you don't say, oh, this person did. It's your responsibility. But he knew that. And so he was like, that's the validation. Like you've, you've made it, you, you chef, you're in kind of thing. So that was, you know, it, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of crazy stories that came out of that restaurant. Now 
for respect for the chef and all of that, I don't want to go into too much detail. And and again, I think that they've totally revamped what they're doing. And I think that they really I think he really understands how to now at this point, like really mentor people and get the most out of them and help them be successful because there's no doubt that a ton of chefs that have graduated working for him are now extremely successful and have these wonderful restaurants. Two of the guys that I worked with as a stage, one of them is in the top 50 best in the world with Burnt Ends in Singapore. The other one is in the top 100, maybe top 50, and he's the chef at Amosfield Winery in New Zealand. And both of these guys are incredibly talented chefs like beyond and they work we all work side by side and you look at this like the journey that these people have gone on since i worked there and and you know it's very special that a chef can really get that much out of people and and allow them to propel their careers that much off of a short period of time working with them so you know he's obviously doing something right i got a lot of i do have to say i got a lot of respect for renee and i Hopefully, we'll get to eat at that restaurant another time in my life. Yeah. And if you haven't and you're listening to this, check it out. At least watch some videos on it. Pretty fascinating. It's, it's enormously fascinating. And, it, and it's they, they created like a whole, uh, really a movement. <clears throat> movement is probably the right word. It's like they've created this big stir, you know, in the- in Movement, the, for sure. In the uh, restaurant industry and, the, and chefs. Yeah, I mean, there was a- there's a period of time where you looked at plates and menus and it was just almost a copy of Noma and it was almost boring. Like I was just trying to do what Noma was doing, you know, like you had chefs in Toronto going in the park foraging herbs because they saw someone at Noma do it or someone staged there and went to Noma and they're like, Oh, we have to pick herbs in the park, but do you know why you're picking it? Does the flavor match? Is there a, is there a reason? Does it enhance the dish? Does it pair with fish? Hey, this oyster leaf grows at the beach. We fish the fish here. Let's put it together. And that philosophy, Hey, we've got these white asparagus and there's a pine tree there let's grill the pine tree make it a juice and serve it because there's a synergy there of the terroir of what grows together and pairs together and and yeah it was definitely cool and and he was the one that actually wrote me a letter of reference that got me into spain and so that period of time also jumped my career and even though i was only there for four months it still was invaluable to me right yeah so that so this was in uh el bojo madrid yeah, so I was on a scholarship called the Training of Young Professionals in Spanish Gastronomy. Essentially, the Trade Commission of Spain brings over what they felt to be the top up-and-coming chefs from around the world. And every year, they would select 10 to 12 or whatever chefs. I was the first ever Canadian chef to do the program. And I heard about it through someone I was working with who had worked in New York City, who had worked with someone who did it. He didn't want to tell me the program because he knew I would probably get it over him. I did some research online. I was like, I got you, John. I'm going to Spain. I reached out to Renee. He wrote me a reference and we went to Spain. I did three weeks of immersion language lessons followed by about a three-week trip around the country where I was eating in markets, restaurants, and then you do almost a year of working in two restaurants. My first was El Boio, which was just outside Madrid. It says Madrid, but technically it's in Iescas, which is kind of outside Madrid. Mm -hmm. And then I worked at Comerc 24 in Barcelona. Comerc 24, the head chef, Carlos Abellan, was the head chef of El Bui for 20 years. And so you can imagine what type of food they were cooking there, El Bui being a molecular uh, Spanish restaurant that's now closed. And then El Boio was also very modern, but it was two brothers that had taken over their parents' restaurant and turned it into a Michelin place. And at the time, it was a really good restaurant. The food was really good, but it wasn't super busy. And it was only 20, 25 seats, and it was kind of this slower-paced restaurant. 
But now Pepe the chef was the judge on MasterChef Spain. Oh, and, and that, that rock. Super. And he's super famous now and it's super busy. And yeah, but he was cooking awesome food. And he had this cool thing where he was cooking like classic Castilla-La Mancha food combined with modern. So you could go into the restaurant and get a plate of Cayos, which is a tripe and uh, morcilla or blood sausage and uh, chorizo stew, beans and all that. Or you could get the 15-course tasting menu. And so you had this mix of customers that would come in to eat you know, uh, I don't know what, what's it, cordero, the lamb. He would roast, you get a piece of roasted like a lamb and all that. And that that was cool. Then moving into Barcelona was amazing. Just Barcelona is one of my favorite cities. Living there was just such a great life experience. Getting off work um, and being able to walk around Barcelona was cool. Not to mention I worked with some awesome people. The research and development chef that I worked with, he is now – one of he was the executive chef at Enigma Concept, which is Albert Adria's restaurant in Barcelona. Um, I don't know if he's still doing that, but he the, the same thing. All these people were just like are just such good chefs, you know. They're all just so into growing their own, becoming great chefs and all that. Um, when I moved home from Spain, I had this weird. I was working in a restaurant locally. I hated it. I thought that they were not doing best practice of cooking using cheaper ingredients mm-hmm. i'd gone from tasting menu cooking like you know el uh, comer 24 was like a 25 course tasting menu and now i'm cooking a filet mignon with mashed potatoes <laughs> for a banquet of 300 people and i did not uh what's the best way to say this i did not really respect the chef like i didn't really feel like he knew more than me like i felt like I felt like I could do a better job and whether or not that's true, I don't know. And I mean, he's probably a good guy and whatever, but just being young and hungry, I was like, Ugh, I don't want to work here. So I think I worked there for maybe two weeks and I was talking to Vaughn, the chef from New Zealand who I worked with at Noma. And he said, Hey, I know the chef in New York city. Why don't you go there? I said, oh, sure. Okay. I didn't even ask the name. I sent him my resume. The next day I got a phone call from Dynex, which is Daniel Blue's restaurant um, group. And it was the head of HR, this woman, Cynthia at the time. And they flew me out for a trial. So I went out, I did a trial for the day. I ended up getting the job. And then the next five years I spent working for Daniel Blue, opened two restaurants, was a sous chef, did a bit of travel with him. And I ended up back in Toronto at the Four Seasons Toronto because he has a restaurant inside the Four Seasons. Now, the original plan was for me to go to Montreal and open the Four Seasons Montreal, which is at the Ritz-Carlton. But my family's from Ontario, and my dad had some health issues around that time. And so I had asked, what is the opportunities in Toronto? And so they created a Tourneau position for me, which uh, for anyone that doesn't know, Tourneau is essentially a floater in the kitchen, oh. not a not a sous chef. Mm-hmm but not a chef de partie and the tourneau typically works every station. So one night you cook the meat station, the next night you cook the fish station. So on opening night, I cooked the meat station. I was running the pass and I was the person that they trusted to put in there. Um, and so I worked alongside Fabrizio, who is Daniel's right-hand man who does all his restaurant openings. He is his corporate head corporate chef. And I worked with him directly and yeah, five years just flew by. And next thing you know, it was, I'd been working for Danielle for five years, living a super luxury cooking life because they cook at the at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, Danielle does everything from scratch. He is the most 
professional, I guess, whatever you want to call it, chef I ever worked for. He treats him. He is always clean shaven. He always has a clean jacket. He speaks to you with respect. Now he has his moments. He can kick off and he gets a bit crazy too, but he is really hyper. He is amazing. I just got to say that Daniel Blute is amazing. I've never been around somebody with so much knowledge of food and cooking. And he's just has the most ability of anyone I've ever been around in my life, I think. And he is just such a great mentor and person to learn from. And so after five years, I was kind of like my wife had cancer. Um, I had had this really bad hand accident. If you're I don't know if this is a video, but my fingers a little bit smaller there. I had to get two surgeries, multiple stitches. And I was just burnt out on restaurants. I'd been working 16 hours, 18 hours a day for essentially 15 years of my life. And I started cooking for celebrities and I had cooked for celebrities at Four Seasons. And the way it kind of works in these circles is you have to cook for one to cook for the next one. So you don't, you don't start off cooking for a billionaire. You cook for, you know, a millionaire part-time and then you're full-time for the millionaire and then you're for like a multi-millionaire. And then, and so anyways, I had cooked for, Oprah, Martin Short, Larry David, Steph Curry, U2, The Rolling Stones, Drake, Rihanna. Uh, I mean, I can go on and on. I used to save the tickets yeah. from all these people and show my mom. And then at one point I was like, ah, fuck these people. They're just regular people, whatever. <laughs> um, but once you're in that circle and you're able to cook for those people. So I ended up getting a job as a private chef for Martin Short, who's a famous Canadian comedian. Yeah. He was one of the original, I think original Saturday Night Live cast members, maybe yeah. not original, but he was on it way back. Brilliant, brilliant comedian, was by a, the way, brilliant comedian. Brilliant comedian. I worked for him. I cooked for him at his cottage, but that was seasonal because he's only in Canada during the, he's Canadian. So he has a cottage in this like cottage area. And I had got that job through a staffing agency. Shout out to Matt Binkley for hooking me up with that job. And he called me and was like, look, you know, Martin Short's winding down, but I've got this other guy and he's pretty big deal. And you want to, you want to, you want to go, do you want to cook with the big boys? And I'm like, what do you mean? I was cooking for Martin Short. He's like, he's like, dude, Martin Short is like here. He's like, I got you. I'm going to put you up here. And I ended up going and working for a multi-billionaire, one of the richest people in the country. One of the top, gotta be at least hundred, probably top 50 richest Canadians in history. Uh, multi-billionaire, multi-properties across the world, multi-private jets, multi-helicopters. And I did that for about a year. I was a private chef. It was in many ways the best job I ever had. And then it quickly became one of the worst jobs I ever had. Um, the guy was really cool with me, which made the job good. Mm -hmm. And I had a good rapport with him. And he was really respectful with me. And he treated me very well. Uh, and that kind of made me want to stick around longer but the more i did it i just it just gets kind of shallow after a while and i was cooking the same like i cooked a different meal every day i cooked a three-course meal for dinner every day and i never repeated a dish for eight months or so and at one point he was like you know you can like roll out some of the classics i huh? you don't have to always but i just wanted it to be fresh and all these ideas from all these years of restaurants was just coming out on the page and i was killing it like i was really cooking at a high level um i would be on the beach in the bahamas cooking for six people and the net worth of the table would be like 22 billion dollars and i just saw things that most people don't even dream of most people don't go around you know we were i was staying i was flying on private jets Sometimes multiple times a week. I think I've been on four different ones now in my life. I was staying in 
I was staying in places that cost over $20,000 a night to rent. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was in the guest house or whatever, but still, I still got to see it all. And, and it was really eye opening. I learned a ton. And I think that that experience really allowed me to understand that there was more to life than cooking. And it sounds kind of weird to say that, but all I had done for 15 years was cook. I couldn't have conversations with people that weren't food related. I wasn't very good in social settings. Yeah. I wasn't very good around non chefs. I don't drink alcohol and it's not really something that I, I mean, I used to when I was younger, but I don't really drink alcohol. So I wasn't like out partying with chefs and doing the crazy chef life. I was at home reading cookbooks, watching chef videos, listening to chef podcasts, connecting with as many people as I could, cooking on my days off, visiting restaurants, visiting markets. And I think eventually it kind of caught up to me. And when I was working for this billionaire, I just realized, you know, sometimes you have to be able to talk about something that's not food. <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, I mean, but all the, all this like background of, of all this cooking at a really, really high level, then you go to become a professor, right? So how did that, how did that transition happen and what did it feel like? So that is a very good question. When I was cooking at the Four Seasons, I will actually go as far as to say it was one person that influenced that. Really? Okay. And yeah, I will give him this podcast so he can hear this because he probably would appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, but when I worked at Four Seasons, one thing that happened was a lot of chefs came in because it was a Daniel Blude restaurant. All the chefs wanted to eat there. They would all come in for dinner. And the one of the wonderful things about being at a company like that is they got they have a lot of money and yes it's a business yes they're looking at numbers and yes as a sous chef i also looked at numbers but if you came in andy and i knew you're a local chef i could course you out and do this 15 course tasting menu and cook whatever i wanted mm -hmm. and then the bill i would give you would cover my food cost so that I never got in trouble from a, Oh, why are you giving away all this food? I was smart enough to cover the food cost yep. so that the company wasn't making money. And then I could justify it from the PR team and say, Hey, the head chef of this restaurant came in. Who do you think he's going to tell his customers where to go eat? Where do you think he's going to tell all the people that eat in his restaurant? Yep. So I cooked for this guy, Sam Glass, who was a local Toronto chef who was teaching. And he kept telling me, you should get into teaching. You should get into teaching. So when I was kind of really burnt out of cooking and private chefing, I phoned him. To be honest, I was probably crying. Um, I guess for backstory, my wife had been diagnosed with cancer when I was at Four Seasons. And so we had been through this whole cancer thing. And I had this crazy hand accident. Um, and I was just tired of cooking. And I just wanted a break. And I didn't think it would be for very long. I had another friend who was a chef that got into teaching. So I called Jason and said, look, like... You know, what is this world and what does it look like? And they kind of talked me into it and said, you could always start by teaching one class. Mm -hmm. You don't like it, whatever. And so I ended up teaching at George Brown, which is probably, I shouldn't say this because I work at Centennial, but George Brown has the best reputation for a, for a culinary school in Canada. Mm -hmm. And then Centennial was kind of whatever. People don't even know we have a culinary or a baking program. Um, and I taught baking at Centennial and culinary at George Brown. And one thing I really liked at Centennial was the 
faculty, the chair, the Suzanne, the chair of the program, she was just extremely supportive in fostering learning. And I had this passion for bread. And so I had worked in all these restaurants, but I was always baking on the side, baking in the restaurants, going in on my day off to work with the baker. I had baked in Italy. I had baked, I'd ran a farmer's market for baking. And she just saw that and was like, hey, you want to teach the bread program? You're a bread guy, right? And I was like, yeah, sure, I could do that. And she allowed me all these opportunities. I was taking courses. I was taking time off to travel to work with other bakers. And I was finally in a job where you could do that because in a restaurant, you can't really, you can't say, I need a week off. I'm going to go work here, right? Exactly. Maybe, maybe some places, but it's tough. You're doing, you got two weeks off in the year. One week you're going to stage somewhere. It's, it's not really a good lifestyle. <clears throat> And then I just had this interaction with the students and I just loved it. And these students were so green and so new to the industry and had no idea. And they would ask me these questions that I had passed long ago. And I was like, and it, it I just really started to enjoy it. Um, my wife was pregnant when I was at the end of my private chef life. Mm -hmm. And then finally the baby came. I was at home with my daughter. She's now five and a half, Juniper. It was a Friday night. I'd never been home on a Friday night in probably 20 years. I worked every Friday. I worked every Saturday. There was a period of time where I had Sunday, Monday off mm -hmm. when I was at Balloon. So that was kind of nice. But I just worked all the time. I didn't know anything else. And now I'm at home on a Friday. And for the first six months, I did what probably most people that teach do. I watch TV. I read a book. I did some other stuff around the house and just, you know, live my life. And then that quickly got into, okay, I got to push myself again. And then that, then we'll talk about that after the whole bread thing. But I really enjoy the interaction of teaching. I like the success that students get. I like when I see the aha moment, they, the bread sticks to their hands. They can't do it. They're frustrated. Another week goes by another week. And then all of a sudden they get it and that look on their face and then they're excited. And I felt like, when I started teaching, I was, I'm still learning and I am always going to be learning, but this was an opportunity for me to really learn about bread baking. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I'm teaching, I better know my shit, right? I have to know how to answer all these questions. Yeah. And I was getting questions I never even thought of before. And it really took my knowledge from here to here, from very low to high. And, and it really help me have a better understanding of what the pain points around baking are, what questions are people asking, and ultimately, how can I help them become better bakers, get careers, make job opportunities? And I don't know, I guess it was a combination of being off on the weekend, really enjoying my time in class, really being happy to produce something, being in a position where I could learn all over again. You're a sous chef, you're learning, but you're day-to-day -day managing, right? And now I'm just learning again and I'm learning how to teach and how to bake and how to do all these things. And that sort of, I initially thought that I would teach for three to six months, maybe one semester, and then I would go back and open a bakery restaurant. And I just really enjoyed it. And now I've been doing it for just over five years. Um, I coordinated the baking program for five years. So I oversaw the baking pastry arts management program, which means curriculum development, writing manuals, mm -hmm. Uh, writing recipes, equipment lists, yada, yada. And I just switched last September, which is fun that I'm on this platform. I'm now the coordinator of the food media program. And so I still teach baking. So right now I'm technically on the clock for work, but... <laughs> 
I'm technically working, right? I'm learning about food media. You guys are teaching me how to run a podcast, Riverside. I didn't know this. Pro- so anyways, it's been this really awesome opportunity where I can develop skills and I can be curious again and I can learn and I can share that with people. And and then you see these students that get jobs and they're so excited and they they send you pictures and it's like, it's super cool. It's just like a really satisfying thing. And cooking for a billionaire is fun, but after a while it can get kind of soulless. And I would maybe even Mm. argue to say the same in a fine dining restaurant, you know, at the end of the day, there are some restaurants that do great work. Don't get me wrong. I know Mirazur in France, they don't use any plastics in the kitchen. There's some restaurants that have community outreach programs and all that. But at the end of the day, you're cooking for very wealthy people in that style of restaurant. It's not accessible to everyone. You're using local ingredients, but like, you know, it's, it makes a difference. It is important. You are educating your customers, but it's a little different when you're on the education side, I think. And you are mentoring as a sous chef and as a chef, and I, you are guiding the future of chefs, but it's a little different in education, I think. And I think there was something about it that I really liked. I liked the structure. I liked how I could get organized. I liked delivering the lessons, creating the lesson plans and diving deep into essentially artisan bread and more specifically sourdough bread. Before I started teaching at the school, we didn't make any sourdough. The curriculum only had yeasted doughs. Yeah. And I introduced sourdough into the curriculum for the first time. And then we also, I put a proposal together to have a big stone mill. And so we started milling our own flour at the college and that was another learning opportunity. Then we started bringing in guest bakers and I started traveling to anyways, kind of rambling, but nothing none of this was meant to be i'm 41 years old i don't know how i got here there was never a plan a map it just kind of happened yeah no that makes perfect sense and i I would say that you know for me i mean i've done some teaching as well is it's i feel energy when i when i'm at a university i feel energy when i'm teaching and when you see students and like you mentioned the aha moment when you see the light in their eyes by something that that they've done and that that is really you know, kind of struck a chord with them. It's kind of contagious, right? When you do that, it's, it, it, totally. it, it really is really revs you up. Um, so, yep. so that's a good segue about sourdough because really you have a huge presence, right? For sourdough. You are, I mean, that's how, I mean, I love sourdough. I've, I've been doing it for yeah, probably about a year. So I haven't done nearly as long as you, okay. but I love it. And I love the I love the kind of the nurturing aspect of it, the natural aspect of it. And I think it's interesting that you introduced sourdough to this, to this university, to this. Rather extraordinary, so actually. Tell us about your sourdough yeah, journey a little bit here. Um, go ahead, Giovanni. It's tough, right? It's not sorry. Yeah, Giovanni, go. Also, he's also lucky because for our students, it's kind of as if you're asking, uh, I don't know if you guys follow bicycling at all. It'd be like having Greg mm-hmm. Lamond, if you know about bicycling, teaching a student about this is a, 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 a pedal. Because it's basically (laughs) right. Yeah, yeah, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm listening. Yes. Well, the the curriculum for the bread program wasn't bad, but it maybe wasn't what I thought it should be. Let's just say that I thought it could be better. I thought there was areas of opportunity to create better moments for students opportunities for employment and passion. And I think we went from about 
probably 99% of students entering the program wanting to be cake decorators was the number one job they wanted really? to about 50, 50. Okay. So now you've got about 50% of the students that come through the program that want to be bread bakers, 50% want to be well, a little bit, some pastry chefs, some chocolatier. But the number one thing when I started was easily by a mile cake decorating. And I kind of leveled the playing ground a little bit and not, I shouldn't say me cause I have colleagues that are talented that teach that do awesome work. I was very well supported and given the kind of like make the program what you want. And so I turned most of the recipes were straight dough, straight dough. You throw everything in the mixer, you turn it on. So you put yeast, water, flour, butter, sugar, whatever you turn the mixer on, you get a dough. So I started implementing pre-ferments, which is where you take some of the flour and you pre-ferment it. That can be done with yeast. It can also be done with sourdough. And that became exciting for me as well. Um, I work with this guy, Carlo, and I got him to teach the bread course because he was teaching pastry, but he's a good bread baker. And I kind of suggested and the chair at the time was like, really, you don't want to just teach, you know, it's your thing. Like, and I thought, yeah, but if he's teaching it, I'm going to learn from him. And then he helped me take it one step further because he has an Italian baking background and he knew a lot about Italian breads and he just had a different he just had different experience and he's a super good guy and he was very collaborative and the two of us kind of like ripped apart this manual, built it back up, started teaching the classes, testing new recipes. And now he's actually teaching the courses and one other woman who's also very talented, the two of them are teaching the bread courses because I took a step back from labs this semester mm -hmm. and you can't even tell. I went in the lab the other day and I'm like, these breads are phenomenal. Like these are amazing. And I think being able to build something that you do is great, but being able to build something that others can do is even better. And seeing that the students are getting an amazing experience, the faculty gets an amazing experience, the breads are amazing. It's like, wow, I was part of building this and this team of people created this moment of like in this school where it's such an exciting thing. And I originally had changed it to incorporate sourdough, but only because that's my passion and that's where I had been focused for so many years in my bread baking and I just wanted it to be exciting for me. And if I'm excited about making something, the students are going to be excited. They can feel it, right? They can, they know oh. if, if the, if the teacher's passionate, you know, right away. And anyone that's taken any class for any subject doesn't matter. You take an art class, dancing, totally whatever. If your teacher does not care and they're just doing it for a paycheck, you can feel it. And there's a lot of teachers out there that are just like that. And I'm lucky because I don't, you know, I work with people that are similar to me where we want to push our skills. We want to give students opportunities. We want to make a better program. But that kind of is what spawned all of that side of it at the college. I'd been doing it since my very first restaurant, Rundles. And it kind of just kept same thing started as a hobby pat and now it's like a full-on thing i do other i'm trying to get other hot i started doing lego <laughs> with my daughter because all i do is bread baking and every time it's like i gotta write the recipe it's gotta go on the blog i need to shoot that video right. i have to we sell the bread i gotta sell this bread i have to someone's coming to pick this up oh, I, and and it's a business and so i started doing lego so that i'm like can do something that's not bread baking. Lego is a great, is a great pastime. I highly recommend it. And I'm glad you're doing it with your I daughter. I really like so. it. Yeah. I just got her first Lego set for Christmas. And I think we're on our sixth or seventh. The only thing is it's expensive. So you got to be careful because it's easy to order a whole bunch and you oh, just totally. spend 500 bucks on Lego. Totally, totally. But it's a, it's a meat, it's immensely satisfying. So, and it's, it's a great time with your kid. 
Yes. Yeah. So is so with sourdough, you've been doing it for a long time. Like you, you mentioned this was you're doing this when you're at Rundles. So this was probably yeah, so, 20 years plus doing this? Uh, I probably started at Rundles in maybe 2005, maybe 2006. So 18 to 20 years, somewhere in there. And I was the cold apps cook at Rundles. And the chef was in this very obsessive bread bake. I think as a chef, especially when you're at uh, at a high level chef, you go through um, stages of career and you mm-hmm. obsess over different topics. And so he was in this obsessive sourdough phase and he was also in this obsessive charcuterie phase where we were bringing in whole pigs and making our own charcuterie and all that. And one day I was in the pastry room asking uh, Blake, the guy who was doing pastry, couple questions hey what are you what are you doing there and he said well i'm doing this and neil kind of looked at me and said oh you want to learn about bread i said he said tomorrow you're on bread tomorrow blake you're on cold apps you guys switch um i went into the restaurant no idea what i was doing i totally messed it up when i was a student in school we did bread and i had this amazing teacher john Bex, who was like phenomenal pastry chef but i just didn't care Mm -hmm. i just didn't want to learn the pastry bread stuff because I was a savory chef and I'm a chef and I don't need to know this and what, you know, maybe not as far as waste of time, but I just wasn't as engaged as I probably should have been. Um, and so I didn't do a very good job on the bread at Rundle's and he flipped out and yelled at me. And then I kind of thought, you know what, I'm going to teach you that I know what I'm doing. And I learned it. I read Jeffrey Hamelman's book, bread, uh, multiple times. I'm actually on my third copy. I have two copies on the shelf right here, tool i took a copy when i took his course in 2019 and he said he's never seen a book like that and he took a picture mine is the most used book he's ever seen all the pages are falling apart notes everywhere no spine there's no cover fingerprints everywhere dough and he said he'd never seen a book like that so anyways i had learned through that and then neil was baking for a local csa uh, community supported agriculture where Mm -hmm. you pay money you get a vegetable box every week and as a part of it, you got a bread. So I took over that program and I was running the bread for the CSA. And then we branched into doing a local farmer's market. I was at Stratford Farmer's Market. I started doing all the bread for the Guelph Organic Conference. Um, I traveled to Italy to do some bread work. When the chef from Italy was there, he was obsessively making bread. And then when I was at Langdon Hall, I had at the time like what I thought was a good experience. I became very close friends with the chef, Jonathan Gushu, and I was in the office. And he said, oh, man, what am I going to do next week? Our baker's going on holiday and I have no plans. And I said, I'll do it. And he kind of laughed and was like, buddy, you're going to do the bread? Like I think I was the the vegetable cook at the time. I was the entremetier. And he was kind of like, buddy, what? Come on. And I said, give me a chance. What do you got to lose? And I had all this knowledge. So he said, I just want – keep it simple. I did a good job. I started to see some – uh, things that I felt maybe weren't best practice because I had, you know, been in some good restaurants around the world and I started to make some small changes. After the baker's two-week holiday, the chef said, you're now the head baker, you oversee production. And so I took over running the bakery and all the production. Um, the other guy was fine. He was doing a good job. But I think that there's something, you know, you work when you work in a fine dining restaurant, everyone wants to be the chef. Everyone has a goal of becoming the chef. They all want to be at the top of their game. When you work in whatever pub some people it's just a job to them they don't care they're not trying to be the chef they're trying to pay their bills and that's okay there's room for that that's fine for those people and i kind of felt like that was where this baker was at like he wasn't really trying to learn anymore he'd been doing it for a while he was just kind of doing the job 
So they let me run that program. Uh, I did that for a while and that started off as one bread. And by the end of it, we were making eight breads for the menu. We had a bread cart we'd wheel out to the table. They'd slice the bread for you. And it just kind of carried with me everywhere. When I was working for Balud, I was doing bread for special guests, for VIPs. I would make focaccias and stuff for special tasting menus. And then I started baking on the side. I was selling bread at farmer's markets. Then when I was private chefing, I started to take all that knowledge of industry baking and applying it to home baking because mm. I was like, well, how do I make two loaves of bread? I've never done this before. <laughs> I just want to make I just want to make one loaf of bread for my boss. And I even said he was Jewish. I said to him, hey, um, and my wife's Jewish too. So I make I was making hollows every Friday for a long time. I just said to him, hey, look, let me make the hollow because the previous chef bought it. And I said, I'll buy one and I'll make one. So if mine sucks, you still got the backup because he was a very routine guy, right? And I made it and he he like, I swear, he gave me a hug and he said, <laughs> he, he looked at me in the eyes and he said, we never have to buy bread again. And that actually was really important to what I do now with my online business is I had to learn how to bake at home. What equipment do you need? How are the temperatures different? You're not in a hot kitchen anymore. You're in someone's cold kitchen in Canada. Yep. Uh, and so I did it there. And then again at the school, through all of this time, I was baking at home on weekends obsessively to the point where I was buying 20 kilos of bags of flour. I'm sure we all know someone who started baking in the pandemic with a couple loaves sure. and now has a bakery or whatever, or is doing more. And I was buying all this flour and I was kind of losing money. And my wife was like, what is this hobby you picked up? And I'm an obsessive learner. I'm a really obsessive person. And I get really deep into topics when I, when I like them, like almost to an unhealthy point of view, like with Panettone, for example, that's another story. But, um, and I started selling bread just to cover the cost of the flour. Oh, that was it. Check it I out, wanted, really. So, I wanted to fuel. I wanted to fuel the addiction. So, so you're just paying for your addiction. You're just kind of covering covering the flour, and that was it. Wow. How can I justify to my? I mean, keep in mind she's she's uh, she's a master's graduate. I met her when she was living with her parents. She had just moved back from Halifax, East Coast to Canada. She was looking for work. We had no money. She had a pile of debt. I had a little bit of debt because I was cooking in New York, making like, I think, $10 an hour and traveling all over and nothing crazy or unmanageable. And so she was kind of like, hey, like, you spent a lot of money on the flour over there. And what do we, and we were wasting the bread. We didn't know what to do with it. And so I started selling it, going to markets. And I started developing this reputation. I think one thing that really put it over the top was I had a friend who had about 20,000 followers on Instagram. Now, this guy doesn't even cook anymore. I don't even think he does Instagram anymore. At the time, he had around 20,000 followers, which was maybe maybe seven years ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he, um, I asked him, hey, how'd you get so many followers? And he took a look at my Instagram and he said, look, you're a chef. You got all these great food pictures and all this great food stuff. You also got great bread stuff no other chef is doing bread. Like no one else does what you do. This is what is you. This is who you are. And I just went for it. And I used to do this picture where I would take bread. I had a floor to ceiling window, mm -hmm. a white backdrop. I would take a picture and it kind of became known as the Duffy so much that people would post a picture of the bread and other people would comment like, Oh, you ripped off Duffy's picture idea. And like, Oh, it looks like the Duffy picture. And that kind of 
started to grow the social media. And then I was like, well, how do I grow up more? Well, instead of showing the bread, I'll tell people how I made the bread. And I, and it just, I don't know, it all kind of like, it was just that obsessive phase of like, I'm going to learn how to do this really well. And I'm going to do it as much as I can. And I'm going to cancel plans and I'm going to stay in and I'm going to watch these does and read all the books. And at the time there was like nothing online. There's no, you know, like there was maybe five, three good books on the topic. Like I'm trying to think of what would be, there wasn't that much out there, right? And bakers were secretive. You could ask questions. No one was answering you. They wouldn't tell you what temperatures they used or what flour. Sure. No one wanted you to like steal their special sauce, right? <laughs> right. Um, well, and, but the thing I like about it is, I mean, you know, you know, having looked at your site and your YouTube videos, and we'll put all the links in the show notes is you, I mean, you know, you're coming from a professional background in it, right? But you're taking, you know, the, the ideas that you're having, you're trying to take with what a home baker has at their hand, you know, has at their disposal, like when, you know, when you're even showing recently, your normal mixer you use, you're showing people a regular, just, you know, KitchenAid mixer that your average person would have in yeah. their home, adapting to what they can, what they can do. Um, I know like, you know, you know, doing the basics of sourdough, starting off with just, you know, learning how to make the starter and care and feeding for it every day type of thing. And then learning, and this is one of the questions I was going to ask you is normally I would do things manually where I'm creating shaggy dough and I'm let, and I'm letting, I'm letting things rise for a period of time and then doing the folds. I found it interesting that you, that you were combining the, uh, the water and the flour, uh, before adding the, uh, the starter itself. And that's one of the things I was going to ask you is it is, it's, is it almost, a, um, is the way I'm doing it kind of like your beginner way of doing it. Right. And the way that, that you're doing it is, is more nuanced, right? I think so. Yeah, I think that I think that the auto leaves, which is when you add the flour and water together, you mix it. A true traditional by definition auto leaves is flour and water. Now, I call it a fermento leaves mm -hmm. is when you add the levain to it. I think that so personally, if I'm going to mix a dough by hand and I'm at home, it's much easier for me to start with the Levan in the mix. Mm -hmm. It's hard to mix in that sticky starter later on. It's more work. It's more time consuming. It's messy. So I think that stems from that is it's just easier. Now, I don't think that one's right or one's wrong, but if you think of sourdough as an inoculation where you're adding a, an acidic component to the dough, I know this is a podcast, but if you were to picture a graph left and bottom, on one side you have time, on one side you have pH, it kind of goes like this. And the pH goes slowly like this, and then it goes up. And so when you go to bake your bread, you have an acidity in the dough, which is your sourdough. Mm -hmm. If you start with the Levin and the Autolies, you're starting off with an acidulated dough and you're going to move that curve faster. Mm. If you start with only flour and water, technically, I think at some level, there is some fermentation that would happen if you just mix flour and water. I mean, especially if you left it for a few days, it would obviously ferment. But in like a 30-minute period, it's not. You would be starting enzymatic activity. You would be starting Emily's process. You would be starting the gluten development, which gluten can develop through relaxation period. So it does work in both capacities. I think that the better method is to do it without the starter and add the starter later. 
Is that the best for everyone? Probably not. Think of a large bakery that only has one mixer. They don't have time to let that dough sit in the mixer for an hour, so they don't do that. Right. Some bakeries don't do autolies at all because they don't have time for it. I think that you can get great results without it. You probably get a better volume in your final loaf. There's many reasons why it can be good. But again, it's not a one-size-fits-all response it's kind of what fits your schedule and what fits your baking i have two little kids and a big mixer it's real easy for me to chuck the levain in the mixer and let it run for 15 minutes and then check it every couple minutes versus if i had to mix that levain in by hand there's 15 minutes that i'm stuck with dough everywhere at that point you know the kids have both like made a mess of the living room (laughs) one has climbed on one is one is hanging from the chandelier and you know no my kids are my kids are really well behaved but i think you understand where i'm kind of going on that right Yeah, yeah yep I, uh, I, what I really love Nina here. I'll show when we'll link to these. Um, I really enjoyed your turmeric, um, sourdough, uh, sunflower seeds and cherries, uh, that you put out there. This was awesome. So, so that recipe was requested to me by a, a chef who was doing grand crew, which is a wine dinner. They raised over $50 million for Toronto general hospital this year. And I typically do the bread for Daniel Balud cause he does grand crew in Toronto. So I usually, he, I will do his bread and take it to the dinner and whatever. Um, and this other chef had seen that. So she reached out and said, I was in Turkey and I had this turmeric bread. Can you make it for me? And I was like, cool. So I made it for her. I loved it. At that version was just with seeds. And I thought there could be something more to this. And then I think I, I either posted it on Instagram or I sent it in on my newsletter. And some people baked it. And the results were so good. I thought, I got to put this in a video because people are killing this recipe. And when you are a recipe creator, it just takes one bad recipe to lose a couple people. You know, if you make my recipe and it sucks, you're probably not going to make another one. You might trust me for two. You're definitely not going to trust me for three. So I thought this is a good recipe. People get good results. It looks cool. It gets clicks. It gets views. It's exciting. It's different. And that's kind of where this recipe came from was from another chef just, and the other, the other bread I did for her was olive and fig. That was uh, dried figs and, and olives. I did those two breads for the dinner. It was Turkish themed dinner. So that's pretty neat. There, there, I think you also had, I don't know if I have a link here, but I think you had a uh, Gouda and olives. Is that right? Gouda and herb. Yeah. Gouda and herb was very good. We visited the cheese factory, learned about how they make it. I have a little bit of that in the video. That was just something I wanted to do because I love traveling and that interaction. And I'm, I'm very amateur at best when it comes to making these videos, I would say. And I have this thought in my head that, so I've made lots of short form videos with bread education, but long form is very different. And my kind of mentality was I'm going to make 50 videos Mm -hmm. and I'm going to post 50 long form videos before I make any changes to my channel, look at analytics, figure out where I'm going. Because right now the season that I'm in, I'm just trying to learn how to make videos. I'm just trying to learn how to use a camera, how to edit the video. Now I've got an editor working that for me, but at the time I edited them all. Like this video, for example, I didn't edit. Um, This was done by an amazing editor who did this one. And mostly I did it myself. And I'm like, I just need to learn how to make videos. If I can learn how to make better videos and get 1% better with every video, same with baking. I want to get 1% better with every bake. Same with restaurant. Every day I show up, I want to do fast. I want to cut the chives faster than yesterday. I want to butcher the fish with less waste than I did last week. I want to, and 
always improving and that's kind of where i'm at with the with the channel so it's nice to hear that people are finding value in the videos and they are getting views and people are baking the recipes is super rewarding well and one of the things um i know uh geo this was something on your mind um because so much of sourdough has to do with the natural environment you're in so uh, so as a baker and as you're, as you're working with breads and you're in an, and you're in an environment, so sourdough kind of pulls in from, from its natural ecosystem and you say, you know, and you've baked in different areas, how much does it influence the bread as you're baking in different environments, home, or if you're baking in a different location, you know, how, how much is affected by that? That's a really good question. And I feel like my answer is probably very different from what people think or want to hear. So it kind of goes back to that notion of the starter. And you see this in bakeries. I got this 100-year-old sourdough starter. My grandma gave it to me in Italy. And then, then, and then, and then. It makes zero difference. I can make the same bread with a 10-day-old starter as a 100-year-old starter. I'm sure a lot of people would argue me on that one. Sure. And a lot of people would disagree. So people insist. It makes no difference. I think... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, you would upset a lot a lot of people. But here's the thing. If you have a 100-year-old starter and you don't take care of it and you don't feed it properly, that 10-day-old starter is going to be healthier. And it's only as old as the flour that's in there. Now, there's this brilliant professor at the University of Edmonton who has a lab and they did a lot of sourdough experiments. And he was kind of confirming what I thought. Now, environment, I think, has a lot to do with temperature, humidity, and ingredient. So can I bake the same bread in France as I can in Canada? Absolutely. But the flour in France is very different than in Canada. Exactly. So if I don't take my own flour with me, like the breads that I'm making, I actually have bread in the in the mixer right now, Audelie's and marble rice. As soon as we're done, I'm going to go mix it. I could make that exact bread in France with the same flour. But the flour in France in general is much softer. So that changes your mixing times, your hydration, your autolies. And so that I think has more to do with the environmental impacts. The other side is temperature and humidity, but that can change in my house. That doesn't have to be from country to country. Winter in Canada is very cold. I use a bit warmer water. Now, is the bread exactly the same in the summer as the winter? Probably not exactly the same, but is it close enough that most people can't really tell? I think so. And I think a good baker or a good home baker, you have to understand how to adapt based on temperature. For example, when the dough comes out of the mixer today, I'm going to try and hit 28 degrees Celsius. For American, I think that's 82.4 Fahrenheit, pretty sure. Hmm? Check that before you temp your dough to that, just in case, if you're listening <laughs> to this. Um I want 28 degrees Celsius, but it's cold in my house. And over the three-hour bulk fermentation, that's going to come down to about 26. If the dough comes off the mixer at 26, by the time I'm done bulk fermentation, it's going to be 24, maybe even 23. So in the summer, I'll use cold water, try to hit a degree of 26, because the mixer friction will actually bring the temperature up after mixing, Mm -hmm. whereas in the winter, the temperature is going to go down after mixing. And so I think that's the important part to understand about the environmental i think it has less to do with there's often there's often this thought that there's yeast in the air and on your hands now lactobacillus san francisco is one of the main bacteria found in 
sourdough, mm-hmm. but it's named that because that's where the term was coined. It doesn't mean the starters from sourdough. You can go online right now and Google sourdough starter from San Francisco and probably pay 10 to $30 for a sourdough starter from San Francisco. You tell all your friends, I bought this. Here you go. Uh, look, I'm making San Francisco sourdough. But within a week of being in your home, it's, different. it's no longer. Yeah, <clears throat> because you're not using the flour. You don't have the same microbes. But I think it has more to do with the microflora and the bacteria on the flour and the grain than in the air. I'm not denying that different parts of the world have different effect and different heat and humidity. <clears throat> One degree of celsius can impact dough activity by roughly seven percent so that can tell you right there that a baker in costa rica is going to have a very different product than me but if we understand temperature time inoculation we can make similar product and i think i just think it's not as complicated as people think like they're like oh i can't i'm going to florida for the week i can't bake because the environment's not good well no you just need to adapt what you're doing right Right. you need to make some changes you probably make a mistake maybe your first loaf of bread isn't that good well then you adapt for the next loaf of bread right exactly good heavens well matthew this has been a really great great education and 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 just hearing your backstory of working in the industry and your journey of going from from being active in these these Michelin star restaurants to you know being a teacher and seeing the joy and satisfaction of your students is really really cool and just learning you know more about you know you know how you you know what got you into sourdough which was a great story and 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 just all the wonderful stuff you do online it's been really fantastic to have you here so thank you we really appreciate it Thank you so much. I think I think our original conversation was to talk about Panettone, but I got so carried away with other stuff I didn't even get to that one. That's okay. If, you, if, you, if you're cool with it, we would love to have you back just to talk about Panettone or just to talk about we making sourdough. I've been and totally I can bring a Sicilian in to argue about exactly the importance of local flora in the, in the, in the starter yeast. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to have that conversation though, because I think that it's important to understand like all sides of it. I, I, and I don't doubt that there's something there. I just don't think that it's as important as people say it is. You know, people often write me and they say, hey, can I buy some of your sourdough starter? And I'm like, well, there's a recipe. You can make one on my site. And they're like, oh, no, no. I want an established one. You can make the same bread with like the the average person won't be able to tell any difference, you know, if I bake two breads. Because for most people, that's not going to make enough of a difference to actually influence what you're tasting. I would love to have that conversation with somebody, though, for sure. Yeah, I think it would be cool. One of the, one of the things we actually um, a few episodes ago when we were talking about, about um, the food in uh, Genoa and we were talking about uh, focaccia and just watching one of the bakers there when he was talking about how Adjusting. he makes focaccia changes changes by the humidity in the day, right? Everything, everything, everything. <clears throat> right, changes. and that I can understand for sure, especially when some of these people are baking at a really high level, you know, and they're really trying to get it dialed in like panettone for example it's really important that you really nail it Mm -hmm. because you can have a big fail and i've had those fails it's very important but the average person day-to-day making a couple loaves of ciabatta at home who cares it's not going to make that much difference Mm -hmm. i just ate one of those fails and paid for it so i do know the difference and it is a pain in the butt <laughs> I'm not like you. I don't know, but I can identify. Okay, at least on the second or first rising, the temperature was too low or the humidity was too high because it is too flat, and it is not worth the forty euros I spent for a kilo of this crap. 
Mannaggia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. One of the things that I found here anyways, I don't know if this happens in Italy. It probably doesn't happen in Italy. In Canada, North America, a lot of people spend more time learning uh, how to package the product really well than make the product. Right. So first you should figure out how to make it really well and then get your fancy packaging, your box, your ribbon. But I, I get there's all these bakeries in, in North America that have this crazy packaging and they've got the name and the brand and all that. And then the product sucks inside. <laughs> what was the... All right, guys, I'm going to... I'm gonna uh, Concluded from here. 